All right, let's jump into God's word. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll open our Bibles. All right, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just, yeah, your goodness to us. Thank you for the grace of being able to gather like this um, online and to all sit under your word together. Um, Lord, we just want to acknowledge that we, we need your wisdom. Uh, we need to hear from you in order to learn how to live life well and to, to learn how to live life that has you at the center. Um, and so just teach us humility, Lord, grant us understanding as we open up this passage. Uh, help us to really trust that when your word speaks that you are speaking. And so um, help us to, to really listen intently um, and to, to really pay attention um, to what you want to teach us tonight. And God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Open with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes 8. And tonight we are going to take the entire chapter, entire chapter 8, um, kind of like we've been doing. We've been just taking big chunks. And we're, we're almost there. We're almost to the very end. And I admit that we are in this portion of Ecclesiastes that seems kind of difficult. Uh, it's maybe a little more confusing than the beginning of the book was. It's a little repetitive now, right? We've seen the same themes come up over and over again. Uh, and so if you're feeling that way, then let me say, just hang in there. Uh, I kind of feel like that too, just studying through this. But I think it's good for us to wrestle through some of the more challenging parts of the Bible. Right? It's hard. It's good for us to just ask questions and to wrestle with the text. And maybe for many of us to, to be in the Old Testament and to study poetry. Um, but the preacher is bringing us somewhere. Okay, He's going to wrap it all up for us soon and bring us to this conclusion in chapter 12. That's where we're headed. But if you've been paying attention the past few weeks, uh, he has kept reiterating this lesson about the nature of wisdom. And that lesson is that wisdom will not enable you to overcome the frustrating enigmatic realities of this life, right? Wisdom will not help you to just uh, get rid of the vanity of this life. The solution to life in a fallen world isn't just knowing all of the right stuff. It's not making all the right decisions. It's not having all the right answers. It's not learning how to live skillfully. Uh, he says that at the end of our passage in verses 16 to 17, Ling Seichi put it well for us last week. He said, wisdom doesn't offer you control of your life, but wisdom is valuable because it will give you protection, right? It helps you to live a wise life. It will protect you from sin. It will help you to live this life rightly with the proper perspective as God intended. And so we're going to see this balance again in our passage for tonight. In fact, I think it actually bookends um, our chapter. So look with me at verses 16 to 17. This is the end of the chapter. He says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So I think there, the preacher is talking about wisdom kind of in a negative sense, okay, in, in verses 16 and 17. He's talking about the limitations of wisdom. And when he, he's saying when he tried to turn to wisdom as the answer for solving life's problems, 
What was the result? Well, he was just left feeling more restless. He says, how neither day nor night do one eyes see sleep. And he was left with even more unanswered questions. Um, he says, there however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. And so there's the limitations of wisdom. You cannot control life by just knowing the right things. But look at the very beginning of our passage in verse one. He says, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? And that sounds like a rhetorical question. You would expect the answer to say, uh, the answer to be, well, no one, right? No one knows the interpretation of everything. But notice that's not what he says, right? He says in the next verse, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So in other words, it is possible to learn the right kind of wisdom. But as we saw last week, especially um, from that weird verse that I'm glad I didn't have to explain, but the one about one man among a thousand men and women, right? In uh, verses 28 and 29, back in chapter seven, he says, this kind of wisdom is rare. Very few people have it. But when you gain it, it changes you. Right? That's the picture in the rest of verse one, he, um, the hardness of face there that he's talking about. It's kind of describing this sort of like stubborn resolve, someone who's set in their ways. But he says, wisdom, it changes you and it makes your face shine. And that language there of your face shining, it's like all throughout the Bible, that, that type of language, it describes God's favor. Um, Numbers 6.25, Psalm 67.1, it talks about uh, God's favor um, associated with uh, your face shining. And so wisdom, it softens your face. It makes your face shine because it softened your heart. And it softened your heart because it has given you, it's equipped you with truths about who God is, with who you are, and with what God has said about this life. Wisdom has equipped you with perspectives that train you to be more gracious and understanding and patient. Wisdom softens your heart, which shows up, and softens your face. That's what he's talking about in verse one. One pastor put it like this. He says, the beauty of wisdom is that it can lift our spirits without having to change our situations. I think that's a good summary of what's going on here. So that's kind of just the big idea that we've been talking about all along, right? Um, There's just the value of wisdom. And here in chapter eight, the preacher helps us to learn that kind of wisdom applied to a specific area of our lives. And that is how to live wisely in a society of power and authority. How to live wisely in a society of power and authority. In verse two, he says, uh, he's talking about the king, right? We're in the royal courts here. We're talking about those in power, those in government. Um, I, I think it's God's providential timing that just two days ago, Joe Biden was inaugurated as the new president uh, of the United States. And I know that government politics, it's been a very big topic of conversation recently. Right? And, and that's understandable. We had an election. We had uh, just all the other stuff that happened uh, as a result of that, right? It's, it's like pretty big events that have hap- been happening. And so uh, understandably, it, there's been a lot of talk about it. But if there's one major area of our lives where we could all apply the preacher's words in verse one, uh, there's this need for wisdom and how wisdom changes us. I think one major area is how we relate to those in positions of power and authority or how we think about and how we conduct ourselves when it comes to 
uh, for example, those in government. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. But it's not just elected officials. It's not just like government people. I think we can apply this wisdom more broadly to other authority figures in our lives as well. Maybe parents, employers, your teachers, um, even elders at church. Uh, government is just one very current uh, and very relevant example that I'll be referring throughout this message. But as you listen, like think about what this looks like in your life. What relationships could this apply to you for you? What authority figures do you need to apply this this wisdom that the preacher gives us. Um, but over the, the past few months, you've seen the various responses of people to our nation's government. Uh, you've seen like when, when things don't go the way that people want, when they don't believe that the government is doing its job, what do they do? They protest. And uh, some people would even take it a step further and they like violently riot, right? You've seen that in the news. On the other hand, when, when President Biden was inaugurated, a lot of people felt a sigh of relief. And they, they said something like, well, like finally Trump is gone, right? Like now we can solve all of our problems. We just get the right people in office and everything will be okay again. And of course, some of these issues in government are much more complex. I want to acknowledge that. And after all, scripture does affirm the real influence and the real consequences that a, a leader or a ruler can have on its people. But besides all of that, I think Solomon's words are helpful for such a time as this. Because first of all, I want to point out that Solomon speaks about kings and governments and authority as a king and as someone who is an authority. And so he knows what it's like. He knows the way that things work. Uh, work. He knows the specific temptations and tendencies. But also, much like how he's been doing in Ecclesiastes, he acknowledges the reality of this life under the sun. And he shows us that in a world that is marked by vanity, in a world that's that's characterized by havel, that word vanity, much of government is corrupt. I mean, back up to Ecclesiastes 7.29, he's already told us that about all people, right? He said, God made man upright. Um, God made people in his image, right, to, to live righteously, but they have sought out many schemes. We've all went our own way. And of course, that's going to play out uh, when sinful people take positions of power. Right? Rather than protect its people and seek justice, kings and rulers in this world, they use their power to hurt other people. That's what he talks about in verse 9. And so as, as the preacher helps us to think through this, like he is not blind to that reality. But he says there is still a way to live. There's still a way to conduct yourself even in a world that is marked by injustice and imbalance and sinful government, there's a way to live that is wise and not foolish. And there's a way to live even under corrupt rulers that even leads to joy. That's what he says in verse 15. He recognizes that how we understand, how we relate to those who govern over us, like I said, maybe parents or teachers or employers um, or government officials, how we, how we relate to them is one way that we often wrongly seek control over this life and over our circumstances. And so what does it look like to live wisely? Um, I, I think another way that we can phrase it according to this passage is to fear God. He, he says that uh, a couple of times in verses 12 and 13. And to live wisely, I think specifically in chapter 8, is to fear God. Now, what does that mean? Well, 
if you look back to Ecclesiastes 7, 13 to 14, the preacher said, uh, he said that God made both the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. And so because of that, he says, consider him, right? Live your life in constant consideration, uh, constantly acknowledging God's hand in everything. Uh, you may have heard the Latin phrase before, uh, quorum Deo, right? And that means uh, in the presence of God or before the face of God. I think that's a good description of what it means to fear God. To fear God is to live your life quorum Deo, to live your life constantly aware that you are living before his face, that he is watching your life and you are considering who he is in everything that is happening in your life. And specifically, when it comes to relating to those in power and authority, um, it looks like at least these two ways that he gives us in our passage. Okay, to fear God looks like at least these two things that he tells us. And this wisdom, it guards us from those two responses that we mentioned earlier that we've seen like so evidently with government recently, right? These, these two temptations to like, we respond in the wrong way when those in power and authority don't do what we think they should do. Uh, and on the other hand, we can place too much stock and we can place too much hope and trust in the next person, right? Just in the next government ruler. And so Solomon's wisdom guards us from placing our trust in rulers rather than God himself. Okay, so um, I have two points for my outline, two ways that we fear God, specifically when it comes to uh, with government or figures of authority. Um, the first one is this, fear God by humbly submitting to those he has set in authority over you. Fear God by humbly submitting to those he has set in authority over you. Uh, verse two, he says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases for the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. I know there's a lot there, but in these verses, the preacher tells us how we should relate to those who are in, a pow who are in power or authority over us. And he puts it in a, a few different ways. Right, verse two, he says, keep the king's command. Uh, verse three, he says, do not, uh, be not hasty to go from his presence. In other words, like don't disrespect him. Right? Don't just like storm out the door. And then verse five, whoever keeps the command, that's the king's command. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. So what is the big idea here? How do we relate to, to those who are in power over us? Well, he says, submit to them. Do your best to obey what they command you. Why? What are the reasons for that? Well, he gives us a couple. Um, in verse three, he says, do not take your stand in evil cause. So uh, that's, that's defying the king. That's going against his orders. Four, he does whatever he pleases. And in verse four, for the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? And so this first reason is, uh, it's a pragmatic reason, right? He says, you're not the one in power. And so you might not even be able to change anything. 
And so knowing that, don't like unnecessarily provoke the king because there's no guarantee that it'll do anything, right? Even if you bring it up to him. If you're in a position of power or authority, that means you get to make the rules. That means you get to do what you want. And then verse five, it says, if you keep the king's command, uh, things will just go better for you, right? You stay out of trouble. You know no evil thing. Uh, let me just try to give you an example. When, when Brie was in residency not too long ago, she would often tell me about her program director uh, who, who, who would seem like he would just do all these things. He would make decisions seemingly out of selfish motivations that, rather than like actually looking out for you know, those who are under him. And she would tell me about this. And, uh, and for me, as someone just like outside of the situation, it would be easy for me to say like, you know, someone needs to speak up. Someone needs to like, let him know, right? Or just like bring it up to him. Uh, but Brie would be like, or Brie would tell me, you know, he's just going to be like that. That's just how things are around there. That's how things work. And I think that's kind of what the preacher is saying here, that you can stand up for what's right. But at the same time, you recognize that you can't control certain things, that sinful people are going to sin. And is, so is this just like passive resignation? Is this just accepting things as they are, like we don't care anymore? No, I think it's not resignation. It's more like having the right expectations. And he's going to say more than this. Okay, so, so hold on to that thought for now. But we need to understand this, this kind of at least this pragmatic reason, right? What do we expect? from these sinful rulers. But in verse two, the preacher gives us another reason and it's a theological one. So he says, keep the king's command. And here's the reason, because of God's oath to him. Now that phrase there, it could be talking about God's oath to the king. Um, That's how it's kind of, you see in ESV, uh, as in God set the king in authority, right? God had made an oath to him, or it could be your oath to the king. Like you as a subject, you've committed to to following the king's rules, right, before God. Um, Some other translations uh, render it that way. But either way, I I think we see that humble submission to those in power, to those in authority, is a response to who God is and what he has done. Humble submission to those in power is a response to who God is and what he has done. And that might sound familiar to you because the Bible says the same thing about the role of government elsewhere. Um, for example, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. And those are on your handouts. But like, listen to the parallels with our passage for tonight. This is Romans 13. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And then similarly, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You see that similar idea in in those three passages? So yes, sinful people, they are going to sin, right? Including those in power and authority. And that means we need to have the right expectations that we don't place our trust ultimately in people But the preacher also says that we have reason to obey whenever we can. Uh, One of the things that God has established in a world that is cursed by sin is government. That that is his common grace to us. He's he's given people authority to maintain order and to curb evil. 
And so how we conduct ourselves before human authorities says something about what we think about God's authority in our lives. And I think that's, that's what he is trying to help us to understand. It's not just like these rulers that we don't like. Maybe we need to think about what do we think about God's authority? And one of the ideas that comes up repeatedly in chapter eight and throughout Ecclesiastes is just our lack of control over what happens in our lives. And we just talked about that when it comes to the actions of the kings or the rulers in verses three and four, right? Like we can't control what they're going to do, even if we bring it up to them. But if you look down at verses seven to nine, it comes up again. Okay, uh, verse eight, he says, no man has power to retain the spirit or power of the day of death. Um, and so the preacher says that you cannot harness, you cannot control the wind. Um, that word for spirit is also wind. Uh, nor can you delay the day of your death. He says in the middle of war, you can't just decide when you want to be discharged. You can't guarantee the outcome of your actions. And there are things in this life that are, that are simply more significant than you that are bigger than you, that you just cannot control. And that's true of everyone, right? A king cannot control the number of days that he gets to reign. As tyrannical, as unjust as some dictator might be, death is going to bring that ruler's reign to an end. You can't control that. But that's also true of you as well. Those who are under the authority of parents and teachers and those in government. And I think the preacher brings this up. The connection is that often it is our desire for control that makes it so hard for us to submit to those in authority over us. It's hard for us to humbly submit because we want control. We don't want to give it up. And so when we take this posture of humble submission, what we're doing is we are demonstrating a trust in God's control over our lives. He is the one who has sovereignly and who has providentially put these people in place over us. Uh, let me just give you another example of this or uh, illustration. Uh, when Brie and I were going through premarital counseling with Pastor Kim, during one of the sessions, he was explaining the different roles uh, that the Bible describes for us as husband and wife. And so we got to, I mean, this is a, a big topic, right? Um, but we got to the topic of, God's call for the wife to joyfully and humbly submit to the leadership of her husband. And uh, I don't know what you guys think about that word submit, but he was explaining to us that to submit, right, for the wife, it's not just like giving up all independent thought. It's not giving up all efforts to influence her husband. To submit is to honor and respect her husband, is to joyfully and willingly um, follow his leadership as unto the Lord. And so Pastor Kim, he brought up this example of like, okay, say the husband wanted to make a really stupid decision. Um, say he wanted to buy a boat or something, right? And the wife just thought it was a really bad idea. And he said, you know, you, you can talk it out. You can make attempts to influence him. You can have multiple conversations about it. But at the end of the day, to willingly and lovingly submit to your husband, right? In that situation is to say, God, I trust that your design for marriage is greater than what I think is better. Right? As, as wrong as I think like my husband's idea is, I trust that your design, your call for me in marriage is better than my own wisdom. It's better than what I think is better. And I think that's a similar idea to what um, the preacher is teaching us here. Do you trust God's design? 
Or do you just want to hold on to your own wisdom, your own desire for control? Now, to be clear, this isn't like a blind, absolute obedience. Yeah, that's always the question when you, whenever you bring up these passages, right? Like, what, what if the government wants me to sin? And, and the Bible answers that question for us. Um, Peter and the apostles, when they were uh, forbidden from preaching the gospel, they said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. So there are exceptions. There are moments where we should defy the government because we need to obey God. His authority is more important, but even this requires wisdom. I mean, a very current example of this is how churches are responding to government orders about in-person gathering, right? Or uh, related to that with singing or just regulations with COVID. And I'm thankful that our elders and the response team at Lighthouse, uh, that they're trying their best to be thoughtful, to be biblical with both honoring the government as well as shepherding the church family. And, and that's, that's a hard you know, decision um, that I'm, I'm glad that they're thinking carefully through. But you've probably seen this like spectrum of responses from different churches, right? For some, they believe that it's more of an Acts 529 situation where it's appropriate and it's necessary to defy the guidelines in order to be obedient to scripture. Um, for others, they would say that the government's not causing us to sin. And so we submit to them as those that God has put in place. And I think like, it's fine. You know, people have different convictions, but wherever you end up landing, I think the preacher is saying that our starting point our default position should be that we try our best to humbly submit, even if we might disagree. Like we should want to obey. In scripture, that is the norm rather than the exception. And there are exceptions. I want to acknowledge that. And like we said, this isn't mindless activity. This isn't passive resignation, but uh, because he says more, right? Look at verse five. It says, whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Uh, verse 6 there, there's a time and way for everything. That should remind us of chapter 3, right, of the different seasons of life. But did you catch what he said? He says, uh, he doesn't say, like, don't do anything. He says, there's a proper time and there's a proper way for everything. There's a wise and thoughtful and effective way for influencing those in authority for good. And if you're too hasty to go from the king's presence in anger, right, in verse 3, if you are too uh, quick to just, like, defy, if you're too quick to just uh, to make certain unwise decisions, then you lose an opportunity to influence him and to move towards change. And often change starts with the hard work of wise and humble submission out of a fear of God. And so what does this look like for you guys? Uh, Like I said, I think we can apply these principles more broadly to the authority uh, that others, such as parents or employers or teachers, exercise over you. Um, Government might be a helpful thing to think about as well, especially today, but you can think about these other authority figures as well. So for some of you, you're going to enter the workforce. Um, Maybe you're already working or very soon and you're going to enter the working world and you'll be wide-eyed and you're motivated. You're like ready to live out your faith in Jesus at your workplace. And pretty soon you find yourself working under a boss or a manager or you're working in an environment where you might not agree, right? Where things are like, to be honest, kind of corrupt or messed up. And maybe for you, your temptation will be to grow indifferent or to be not as diligent with your responsibilities, 
you show up to work and you do what you need to do. You say, oh, you know, it's just a job after all. Well, our passage reminds us there is a proper time and there is a way for everything. And just because work uh, is difficult right now, just because your boss is difficult right now, don't automatically write off opportunities to influence others for good. Verse one, it says that those who know wisdom, they live in such a way that is evidently distinct from the world, right? It is noticeable. It is obvious. And so practice wisdom. Let your light shine in such a way that others may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 5, 16. For others of you, the area of application for you is going to be your relationship with your parents. You guys are all in this season of your lives where you are now a legal adult and you're making your own decisions or you're becoming more independent from your parents. Um, But say there's something that you and your parents don't see eye to eye 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 on. And maybe it's something significant, you know, like where to live in the future, the career that you want to pursue, uh, a future spouse, right? They don't want you to end up with this person. Uh, and maybe you don't have believing parents, right? That, that adds like another dynamic to your relationship with them. And so maybe the temptation for you in this relationship is just to go against what they think, right? You think, okay, they don't agree with me, but I know what I want to do. Like church people, they tell me to do this. My parents, they're so sinful. They have the wrong priorities. All they care about is, is money and my job and all these things. But realize when you make these certain decisions, Right? They, that they can negatively affect your influence and your relationship with them. And when you act in ways that are unwise, when you're too hasty to, uh, to, to walk off, right, in verse 3, it can cost you opportunities to witness to them. Now, I know that oftentimes situations like this, they aren't, like, straightforward. They're complicated. Um, sometimes you do have to go against them. That's why the preacher says in verse 6, there is a time and a way for everything. But at least from our passage He wants us to think about this question. Are you willing to be patient? Are you willing to move slowly? Have you considered your own heart motives? Have you considered God in the bigger picture? And here are just a few practical uh, practical questions that might help you think through these kinds of situations. These are on your handout. Um, The first is just, do you recognize God's sovereignty? Your, Your parents, your teachers, your bosses, those in government over you, all of those in power and authority beyond those people I I mentioned, they are there by the sovereign hand of God. And even more than that, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in Ecclesiastes 7, and as we're often reminded at Lighthouse, right, not just them, but like everything in our lives, both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity is not only from God, but it's lovingly and wisely and purposefully given to us from him. And so do you see God's sovereign hand in your situation? Do you acknowledge that, it, that God has sovereignly placed you in this situation. Second, do you recognize your own sinfulness? It is so easy to focus on other people's sinfulness or on ways that we feel like they have wronged us. But do you also recognize that you are a sinner in need of grace as well? Now, are you aware of your own temptation to sinfully respond when you are sinned against? Third, what are some God-honoring steps you can take? I think something that our passage teaches us is that we don't, we don't get all the answers, right? We don't know how things will happen. We can't guarantee the future. But what are some small steps that you know that you can take to, to move in the right direction? I think 1 Timothy 2.2 is a good example of this when it comes to government. 
Paul says that one thing that you can do is to pray for kings and all those who are in high positions. And, and actually, there's a, a cause and effect in that verse. It goes on, it goes on to say, um, pray for them that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So in other words, pray for them because how they govern, it impacts and it enables the rest of us to live these, kind of, uh, these kinds of quiet and peaceful and godly lives, right? That's one thing you can do for those in authority, right? Pray for them. Pray for your parents. Pray for your employer. What are a few steps that you can take to move in the right direction? Uh, just one more thought before we move on. And throughout the New Testament, we see that believers... Uh, are willing to suffer wrong at the hands of those in, in power and authority for the sake of the gospel. Right? We see Christians be willing to suffer wrong at the hands of those in power for the sake of the gospel. And in 1 Peter, it actually talks about this distinction between suffering for doing good versus suffering for doing evil. So he says there's a kind of suffering or there's a kind of punishment from those in government, for example, that you like bring upon yourself. It, so like if you, if you get kicked out of the grocery store, it's not because, you know, it's uh, you love Jesus. It's because you didn't wear a mask. Right? There's, there's like certain things that we can do to bring punishment upon ourselves. First Peter 2.20, this is what he says. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So when we suffer for doing good, Peter is saying that there's something compelling. There's something influential. There's something distinct about our willingness to suffer for the gospel. And so are you, are you willing to suffer wrong? And if it means that you can uh, put the gospel on display. Like I said at the beginning, the preacher is very realistic about human government and authority in this life under the sun. And maybe you're thinking like, and humble submission would be so much easier if we could just like 100% trust our leaders and authority figures to just do their job, right? If we could just trust them to be honorable, just committed to fulfilling their duties. Um, but the preacher says in verse nine, he says from observation and from experience, all this I observed, I observed while applying my heart to all that is under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Right? He acknowledges people use power to hurt others. And so to fear God and to live wisely in a society like this means that we are striving to obey our God-appointed leaders. We are striving to conduct ourselves thoughtfully and graciously and patiently. And this is not a passive inactivity, but it's having an eye for the right time and the right way to do things. Well, the preacher gives us more than just wisdom for the present, but he also gives us hope for the future. And this, is, this leads us to our next point, and this one's going to be shorter. Uh, but point number two, fear God by living with integrity in light of future judgment. Fear God by living with integrity in light of future judgment. So in these verses, the rest of our passage, as a preacher looks around and he observes the corruption of authority and how man misuses power and over others, it looks like a few different things. Okay, verse 10, he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So in that verse, he says, uh, the wicked people were praised, that they, they get away with it. In fact, these wicked people, they even went uh, in and out of the holy place, right? They went to the temple, they went to church. They had a reputation 
for being good and moral and religious and praiseworthy. Verse 11, he says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So in verse 11, he's talking about uh, the slowness of human justice systems. So not only are people inherently sinful, but he also says the system is broken. He says because evil isn't punished right away, because it takes so long from when the crime is committed to this person like being put in prison, people are not deterred from doing wrong. And so others are like, okay, why should I even bother doing what's right if like, people get away with, with it, right? The slowness of this human justice system. And then verse 14 says, there's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And so in that verse, he says, the good people suffer. And this isn't the only place in the Bible where this dilemma comes up. Um, I think of Psalm 73, where the psalmist observes this. But he says, life seems so unfair. One commentator put it like this, that wicked people prosper and live healthy lives, and righteous people seem burdened and suffer. And the parcels of retribution and reward have had their labels switched and have been delivered to the wrong addresses. And so this is what the preacher sees when he looks around at those in authority uh, around him, that those with power haven't done what power is supposed to do. And the best way to describe all of this is with that familiar word that we've seen over and over again throughout Ecclesiastes, that word vanity. You see that in verse 10, you see that in verse 14. Then look at what he says in verse 12. And notice the progression from his observation, right? In verse 10, he says, I saw. But look at what he says in verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. All right, so in verse 10, he looks around and he's, he sees all this corruption. Verse 12, he says, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. The vanity of this life under the sun means that there will be many moments in which life doesn't go the way that you think it's supposed to go. And there is no discernible pattern to how things work. The wicked people get what the righteous people deserve and vice versa, even though it's not supposed to work that way. But verse 10 again, he says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, and even if I see this a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. And so truth about God informs the way that he views and interprets the world rather than the other way around. It's good to pursue justice in this world and human government and those in authority, they should make it their aim to seek justice for those under them. But he knows that ultimate justice won't happen until God makes it all right in the end. And one day, everyone, subjects and rulers, will have to answer to God. In fact, from the rest of the Bible, we know um, why justice in this life can seem slow sometimes. Right? 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so what does this mean for us? It means that we place our hope in the future judgment of God, that we live our lives in light of that reality. And for ourselves, that means we take our sins seriously. 
right? God is not just patient with those sinful kings, but he's, sin, but he's patient with us as well. Right? We seek to live with integrity in every area of our lives, not before the face of earthly rulers or authority figures, but before the face of God. And this gives us hope. Right? Other people, even government rulers, might get away with certain things. Obedience and wise and faithful living might seem pointless. But God is going to bring that all into account. Uh, verse 15, it's a familiar verse for us because the preacher has mentioned this multiple times throughout the book. But he says, in verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Enjoy life, right? Be joyful. Enjoy God's gifts. So how does this apply to what, we, uh, what we've talked about tonight? Well, we learn joyful living even in a world marked by sinful government and sinful authority when we stop trying to figure it all out. When we gladly let go of our desire to control life when we humbly submit to God's design, and when we trust that one day he will bring the justice that is so lacking in this world, and he will bring it in the end. Let me close with this. The reality of power and authority in this world, it points us to our need for a king whose authority we can trust. Right? It points us to our need for a perfect king, a king that we know will bring about justice like he should. And for us, we know that that king is Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus, rather than use power for his own gain to push others down, that he willingly gave up his rights and his privileges to lift us up. We know that Jesus traded his crown for a cross. And I think about all throughout his earthly ministry, everyone, including his own disciples, they were so hopeful that he would come and he would take the power that he deserved. But that's not what he did. He was resolved Uh, to suffer and to die for us instead. He is resolved to suffer wrong on our behalf for us. And we we read from uh, 1 Peter 2 earlier about how God calls us as believers to be willing to suffer for doing good. Well, that passage also tells us that we're not alone in this. If you keep reading, it tells us that we have an example who went before us. It says in verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to, who, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He is our example. And that same Jesus who died, who rose, who ascended to the Father, he is going to come again. And the next time that he comes, he is going to come in power and in judgment. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats and earthly rulers will fall down before him and he's going to make everything right. And this is our hope, right? This is what we look forward to. And that hope enables us, it empowers us to live wise and faithful and joyful lives, even in this life under the sun. Let's pray. Father, we want to entrust our lives to you, to your authority. Um, God, we want to acknowledge that all those in 
authority, positions of authority over us, whether parents or teachers or employers or church elders or government officials or new president, uh, they are there because you have placed them there and uh, that they are your grace to us. Um, and so God help us to live wise lives in, in this society. Help us to humbly submit um, to those that you have uh, given this privilege to and help us to uh, live in such a way that, that makes the gospel shine. Um, a way that is so distinct and so different from the world to live in a way that is gracious and patient and even willing to suffer wrong uh, for the sake of the gospel. We keep our eyes fixed on the return of Christ when everything will be made right. Help us not to place our hope in this world, um, to think that we can control our lives uh, or even the people around us, uh, but to trust in your sovereignty over us. Um, God, this is uh, such a, a a needful passage for us um, during our just our moment in, in culture and history right now. And so just teach us wisdom, Lord, we ask. Uh, we thank you for this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.